Welcome to Slasher Sports Cinema Division of Slasher Sports, and thank you for tuning in. I want to ask you to hit that subscribe or follow button and turn on those notifications. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of his very own company, Abadak, as well as an actor, writer, director, producer, and stand-up comedian, young or up-and-coming filmmakers. I want you to know his story. He was a long shot. I'm thankful to welcome to Slasher Sports Cinema, Mike Stein. Mike, you ready to put some lipstick on this pig? Absolutely. Let's get it. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for? If not for shedding. I'm the number one fan. We all go a little mad sometimes. You're listening to the Slasher Sports Show with Billy Graves. Mike, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time on this beautiful Friday to come and talk to me. My pleasure. I like that white bat music. That was pretty good. You like that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I put that together myself. I got to thank. Uh, Are you like that? <laughs> no, 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 no. I I had to to piece a few things together. Is what mm-hmm. I mean. The music is from Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. I got to shout him out on on everything he he's great uh he's a very talented kind of a cyberpunk kind of a guy man yeah. I, I love his tunes love him. Mike, like i said before man you were really a long shot in this life and uh like knowing your story really motivates me i want to motivate our listeners who are uh, largely fans of the horror genre and mm-hmm. uh up and coming filmmakers uh likely working on limited budgets um, not coming from any kind of background that's probably going to, you know, be conducive to doing everything they want to do. So uh, before we go even another step, I'd really like our listeners to know more about your podcast, Long Shot Leaders. Okay. I'll try to segue from the podcast into something that might motivate them to say, hey, look, man, any, you know, it's just time plus effort and I can do this because I know what it's like to be an independent filmmaker. So my story goes kind of like this. Uh, I do long shot leaders podcast because for a long time, I just consider myself a long shot. So like I, and I feel like I come from a lot, like a long line of long shots. So like I had to sleep in the room my grandmother until I was nine years old. So she would tell me the story about how she escaped the Russian concentration camps on her way to America. My dad was a New York homeless street kid, slept on the streets. He became a multimillionaire only to become like homeless again when I was in high school living out of a van, not even down by a river. I was born with ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, health issues, never had any success except for making people laugh. Uh, and then uh, one day I saw the movie Rocky when I was like 11 years old. I said, here's a guy like me. He makes people laugh. He keeps on trying. He's, he's dumb. You know, at least like that, you know, I just considered myself dumb back then, you know, so never really succeeded in anything other than make, you know, being funny. And he was funny like me. I said, the only difference is, is that Rocky is physically fit. So then I started working out every day. I was like, I'm going to make this my thing. And uh, 
by the time I was 16, I became, I was very successful at two things. I was making people laugh and I was a physical fitness trainer at like the local Nautilus gym. And I said, oh man, time plus effort equals success. I could do anything, right? So, okay. Now I'm, I'm going to become a comedian. I do stand-up comedy when I was 19. First of all, first thing I did was uh, before I graduated high school, like a month before, my tutor's like, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be an actor, a uh uh, a, a entrepreneur and a stand-up comedian. She's like, uh, you know, you might want to work with your hands because not everybody's meant to do what they want to do. And I was like, screw you. My dad didn't even finish the eighth grade and he became a multimillionaire. Although he lost it all, I'm not going to do that. So I started to do what he did before he made his money. He, st- he had a tool business when he was younger. And I said, I'm going to do a tool business. Made two sales in two hours and then I didn't make anything after that. And it was like summertime. It was the day after I graduated high school. I said, screw it. And that's when I started, you know, to, I was studying acting and I said, you know, I'm going to do stand up. And I brought a lot of people there and I said, shit, you know, if I could bring a lot of people here, nightclub promotion was pretty big in the eighties. I said, I'm going to promote nightclubs. And then within like six months, I became the number one nightclub promoter in my age bracket in Los Angeles. So I said, time plus effort again, right? Time plus effort equals potential success. So I said, I'm going to be, finally, I'm going to go out to be an actor. So after in the first role, when I was a nightclub promoter, I was playing Dirt Diggler in the Dirt Diggler story, which is the short film version of Boogie Nights, which I appeared in as well. And my friend at the time, Paul Thomas Anderson, it was like his first film. And um, I never really thought it would be anything, but then it won an American Film Institute Award and started to see him progress. And I'm promoting clubs. I'm, I'm doing uh, movie parties with Warner Brothers. And I said, you know, I want to leave all this because I see the success he's having. And I really want to be an actor in it you know, filmmaker like he is. He was a a filmmaker. So I left the nightclub business, which was crazy because it was really lucrative. And uh, I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. So I worked in film production and I did a documentary while I was doing a documentary on raves and history of house music around the country. We went around for four months and that documentary, you know, looked great, but it didn't make money and I failed. So then I was like, ah, oh, screw it, man. I'm going to keep going. And then I did a short film two years later, a dramatic live action short film, won many awards, won two biggest short film uh, live action short uh, category awards, which is Palm Springs International and Oberhausen, which if you're, if you make short films, those are the two that you really want to win other than the Academy Awards or Cannes or Sundance. Those are really specific towards short film. Got me an HBO deal from that. Got me all the you know meetings in Hollywood. And I met with... Every Trimark Pictures, Lionsgate, and Joel Silver's office, and you name it. And I got close to a movie deal just like my friend did because I had other screenplays that I wrote about underground gambling casinos in L.A. They wanted to make that one because that really happened to me because I was running underground gambling casinos in L.A. when I was also a nightclub promoter. And it just didn't turn over to a movie deal. I said, screw you, Hollywood. It's been two years since I'd done my, my short film, and I'm going to make my own movie. Only problem is I was broken in debt, uh, and I needed to become an entrepreneur again. So I started a business because I wanted to do something on the internet, had nothing to do with, you know, the film industry. I started selling tarps within six months, made half a million dollars. I said, going to make my own movie. And it was an outrageous comedy that Hollywood would never let me make. Called Love Hollywood style with Andy Dick, Coolio, God rest his soul, just died last month and Faye Dunaway, two time Academy Award winner. And I made that film, very funny film, won some awards, just didn't make enough money. And I said, fuck you, Hollywood. I'm going to like just continue to build my business since it's made well over a hundred million dollars as a business. And 
if I want to go back to filmmaking, I can. I do that, you know, for my business. But um, that's my Reader's Digest version of the up and down long shot story of why, I, if I was going to do a podcast, be somebody that failed and succeeded, but hopefully learned in the end how to succeed, like a good structure of a script would be moral moods, inciting incidences, downfall, near death experience, which there is one, and um, then basically. Uh, you know, equilibrium where the your hero at the end has a new head on his shoulders, and he 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 prospers in the end, and that's kind of like my Reader's Digest version. You know that this listener base doesn't have a clue what Reader's Digest is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so funny. Very short, condensed version. Reader's Digest. That's how old I am. Reader's Digest was an old magazine. So you want to know what this movie or TV show is about? We're gonna here. Here's a whole little paragraph of it right there. Yeah, not unlike a TV guide, uh, which is another publication that's basically gone into obscurity. Reader's right. Digest was something that people waited for. Uh, th- that was like must-read mail right there. I'm so happy you said that because I think I'm going to deep six that reference because it's just antiquated. It really is, but I mean, it, but that kind of puts you in the uh, in the moment with who you're talking to. I mean, I'm 40, so I know you look uh, younger. Well, thank you. So do you, Mike. So do you. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the Dirk Diggler story. I wasn't even going to bring it up. Wasn't even going to bring it up because you you probably have to 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 go through that spiel every time you, you talk to anybody. That's like the uh, the the easy big target to talk about. But I mean, this since you brought it up, Paul mm-hmm. Thomas Anderson. Uh, first of all, this isn't like just some like Billy Grave schmuck making a film. Like Paul Thomas Anderson. Like he directed There Will Be Blood, okay? Like Academy Award nominated. Uh, mm-hmm. He directed the Daniel Day Lewis in his Oscar-winning performance. Like was nominated himself for Best Director, Best Writer. Um, how did you end up on that film? You said you were good friends with him, so apparently you didn't have to, uh, I-, I guess, audition for the role. It was kind of like, hey, buddy, I've got this going on. <laughs> See if you can help me out. So my girlfriend. And his girlfriend were sisters at the time. So I walk out of the house at their dad was Peter Goober, most powerful man in Hollywood at this time, which I wasn't going out with because I was in love with this girl. But uh, I see Paul and he walks out of the guest house with uh, his girlfriend, my girlfriend's sister. And he goes, I need to ride home because he crashed his Cherokee, his first car. And his dad says, I'm not buying you a new one. So he always had to like bum rides. So I said, I'll drive you down to your house. No problem. And I'm a stand-up comedian and a nightclub promoter. I'm like, I'm anything that I see that he's laughing at some of my jokes. What does a comedian do? He's a laugh whore. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to dig into it now. And I just go on a roll and I'm just making him laugh the whole time. And I drop him off. And then like two days later, he calls me up and says, I want to do a film about the rise and fall of a porno star. And I want you to play the porno star. And I was like, well, as long as I don't have to get, you know, like naked or anything, you know, <laughs> wouldn't be such a good film. So, you know, I said, uh, I said, sure. So we go down to his house and, we, you know, and, and he, he's, you know, just a broke kid, you know, 17 years old. But uh, I could see that he's uber into making movies because his whole room was just all film oriented. And um, and uh, we, we just, you know, talked about it for months, a few months. Uh, we did other couple, some joke uh, videos uh, leading up to that. You know, we get an idea, you know, and I said, let's shoot this idea. But then like three or four months later, uh, he finally finished writing it and um, going over ideas and stuff. And then we uh, shot it. 
That's great. And, and you know, you were in the feature length film as well in that scene with Don Cheadle, uh, where he's selling you the stereo. I, I remember the thing I remember most about this this scene is that little hip motion he's got going on when he's trying to to sell you the <laughs> the stereo. Right. That and there's probably something that I, maybe it's my just overly attentive mind noticed. Like it looked like you were walking over a dead body as you were walking off the screen. What was up with that? I'm so glad you noticed that. Some people don't notice that, but so there's there's a dolly track. Dolly, it's dollying in as I'm walking away, and they never featured the shoes that I'm wearing, but the, the wardrobe's like well, we want you to wear these shoes, and they were like platform Elton John shoes. So <laughs> when you walk over the dolly track, you know I'm five seven. You know I'm not, I'm I'm an inch taller than Al Pacino. So I'm like, I'm short. So I have to walk over the dolly track and clear about six inches and the dolly track, you know, so like there's a little bit of a little bit of a step there. They almost caught your knee in the, in the shot having to step over. Right. Right. You know, but you know, Hey, look, you know, I mean, my legs aren't that long to begin with. So, you know, you got to like, you know, the, 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 uh, the ratio of height, you know, plus six inches in these, Elton John platform shoes going over, you know, uh, an approximately five inch dolly track. Uh, that was a bit of a step. Well, it's dumb that I even remember that, but it, like <laughs> this was during my high school years, you know, and not to put a stamp on anything. We've already discussed the, the, the slight age difference, but there were three films that I just come up with off the top of my head that I basically had to go behind my parents back to see. Okay. One, with showgirls uh, i guess was you know part of me was hoping there'd be cameos from the rest of the saved by the bell crew on there right. uh, uh number two was fair game billy baldwin and uh cindy crawford flick when <laughs> word got out that cindy was going to bear it all like the the guys on the football team it, it became like threat level midnight we we were like the black hand conspiring to kill archduke uh, ferdinand <laughs> we had a crinkled up just <laughs> semen stained map on the table with everybody's positions where we had to be what we had to tell the parents to get out of the house and then three was boogie nights um, right <laughs> but enough about so, yeah, I was, I was, uh, before uh, showgirls came out before boogie nights i was an extra on showgirls you were an extra, yeah, on Showgirls. Show yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't even see that, uh, that credit. That uh, I tried to do my homework oh, and I missed that. Credits were for background. I see, I see. My first, well, you know, my first job after, before I even did uh, the Dirt Diggler story, the first time I was on a film set was this is a nice little story. I was an extra on a movie called Lesson Zero, and I was shooting party scenes at night. Lesson Zero was with. Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony, uh, Andrew McCarthy and um, uh, several other, James Spader, several other actors. Andrew McCarthy's big breakout role, other than Weird Science. And um, I was hanging out with this good-looking guy for three days. He was an extra, I'm an extra. I'm with a couple of my friends. There's like 300 people at this party scene. And he's like, you know, I've been shooting on this for like three days. He's all excited. He's like, you want to meet Robert Downey Jr.? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So we go up the driveway in Benedict Canyon and, and Danny Jr. was shooting right. So he gets like 5 30. He's just waking up, walks out, and he's like, Anybody got a light? You know, and he's got a cigarette. And I was like, Yeah, and he's talking to all of us. He's so cool. And I was like, And then I, you know, I remember talking to my friends, I'm like, This good looking guy, it's like, been a, he's been working on this, you know, film for like two more days than us. He, he's like, 
passed around football. You know, I'm like, I'm like 19, 20 years old. So I'm all excited. And, um, I remember these poor guys coming from like the Midwest, but they don't make it. And this guy's so cool and nice. I, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. And then I realized after like, you know, I got his phone number, but I invited him by my club because I just started promoting the club at that time. He never went by the club because um, I don't think he was a nightclub person. But took like two, three of his movies to figure out. I was like, holy shit. That was Brad Pitt. Damn, what? And we share a scene too. We share, if you watch the movie before, like we walk into the house with all the monitors and everything, you could see me walking. Him, he's walking first. He's wearing a, a sleeveless pink and white shirt with ray bands at night. <laughs> and I'm, I'm right behind him. I got a ponytail and a black jacket and I'm like bobbing, you know, walking down. And uh, that was, uh, that's a fun little, you know, trivia tidbit there for you. Well, listen, all right. I'm not going to let you say that, uh, oh, the, the, these good looking people are, are around and then there's me. It's like, no, nah, man, you, you got it. All right. Was there ever a time where you could have been reprising that role as, as Dirk Diggler? I wanted to, you know, and it's a long story, but you know, uh, it, it's tough because when I, when I did do it, it was my first acting role. It was the first thing, first time ever doing anything where you're, you're memorizing lines, you're doing, you know, delivering your work, you're filming. So when you're friends with somebody and that, you know, your first impressions are big, but then I got heavily involved with studying with Eric Morris and Cynthia Segetti and, and a lot of, you know, Gene Shelton and a lot of venerable acting teachers. So by the time Boogie Nights came out, I was primed and ready, but you know, there, you know, Paul had to, Paul did have an obligation for a certain amount of budget, you know, Mark Wahlberg, he needed, he wanted a name, you know, so I definitely, I know I was ready as a thespian to, to take on that role, especially since, because I lived with it for like seven years talking about the character and the breakdown, all that, but it's a business, you know? So I understood that part of it too. Was there ever a time where you tried to at least change some minds and say, you know what, look, I know you've got Wahlberg on the back burner here. I know you can get him, but all he's done is wrapped at this point of note. So like, look, here's what I can do. I mean, well, I, I guess. Yeah, let's, of course let's I blend did. That. Yes, I did. Of course. And sure, I did. Sure. But, but you know, um, nobody owes you anything. Uh, I learned that, you know, and, and, and you, can't hold grudges and it doesn't pay. And, and uh, you know, people, you know, you, you got to make it happen on your own regardless. You know, it's funny, this same subject, I have a friend named Bradley Craig. He was in a movie called stand by me. He was like number two to like uh, Keith or Sutherland in that movie. And he went to my high school. We were friends and uh, it was 1986. I'm sitting in the movie theater and high school. And I was like, I was like, if I just I'm watching the credits, I'm like, if I just knew some of these people in the credits, like Bradley did, I'd be able to get in these movies and then two years later, I'm dating, and I didn't even know who it was until my, I just really liked this girl a lot. I was really attracted to her, and she was sweet, and we went out for two years. But I found out that her father was Peter Guber, who at the time produced, produced uh, Academy Award-winning Rain Man when I started dating her, and then Batman, which I also did a, a big movie party for, probably the biggest movie party, you know. But I stumbled upon this, the most powerful man in Hollywood. And then they wanted to help me. But I was like, I don't want to accept help because I love your daughter. And if I took help from you, that means that I'm, I'm playing you. And I, I have this weird thing going on. I'm a young, you're young and dumb, you know, but they wanted to really, they liked me because I was a good kid, you know? So that you, that's part of the learning growth. So 
then when it came time to when Paul was becoming more powerful, then you you know who you are in the world a little bit a couple of years later. And now you're like, wait, I, I know my worth. I know I'm I'm capable, you know, and then you and then sometimes they'll ask, but you don't get. So, you know, it's funny because you look at those credits and my one of my best friends is Chris Peters and his dad's John Peters. Um, he's a, a big time producer and they're estranged. So just because even in that, that's his son, you know, so Hollywood's a tough place. You know, you have to really like more so than any other industry, you know, and it depends on who, how, not just who, you know, but how, you know, what's your relationship like with who, you know, and, you know, and, and it's just a, a you know, it's a tough, you know, situation, but you have to really be um, Zen like and Taoist to make sure that you just keep on chugging along. And, um, and if, you might not get to where you wanted to go initially, but you'll get to another place. And some people just don't take rejection very well. <laughs> right. right. You it, it can be, yeah. It can be crippling. Right. And when I was given a loss of my, that, that, Hey, look, you know, it's, it's you're in a movie and that's, that's, you know, you make the best of it that you can. Uh, I really liked uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman off that was one of the people that I was talking to the set. And, uh, and he was like, you know, even on audition, you, you, you give it your best. You give it your, you enjoy the process. You really sink your teeth into it. And that's part of the craft. So, you know, I, you know, when I was <laughs> walk over the dolly shot, you know, every word that Don Cheadle's talking about, who's a great craftsman, by the way, and a great actor, you know, in that small role, I'm, I'm spending time to get selflessly involved. My internal dialogue is trepidation and not, not, not knowing if I want to spend as much money on this device, you know, and, um, I even, you know, I went to a, a Best Buy to like even like do a walk, you know, you know, kind of look at something and how do I feel when there's been a situation in the past where I felt about, you know, buying something like that. And that, that was particular to that. So, you know, you have fun with the process, no matter how large or small, whether it's an audition or whatever it is, because that's the craft. That is the craft. And, you know, the, the rejection is just one thing, but there are plenty of things that keep people from taking action on you know, on what they want. What do you think holds people back the most from taking action? Because it's not, it's, it's, it's so easy not to take action. It's quite literally the easiest, most readily available option there is to not take a step. Yeah. You know, it's a uh, fear, you know, leverage of pain plus pleasure. So, you know, it's weird cause I did stand up comedy, but, um, and, and you, you get rejection all the time. It's it, in real time, <laughs> you know, in real time. And you could also get reward in real time. So, you know, I was used to it, but you know, also you, you leverage, it depends on what you want. You know, I want, I wanted financial security. Also, also my, my three goals were, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a standard comedian and I wanted to be an actor. So my dad, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you know, he, he was uh, had a fledgling tool business in the sixties and in the seventies, he left the tool business and his partner, Alan Smith to sell these calculators. And he became such a big entrepreneur and he made lots of money. It, was, it looked really fun. He, they called him the calculator kid. And I was the kid. I was like, I want to be the calculator kid. Right. So then he threw a, a crazy lifestyle, which is for the boot rounds characters like, like 30% of that's based on my dad, crazy, notorious orgy parties in LA, blew all his money, long story. But I saw him, and then my dad was homeless again, but I saw this, this great lifestyle. So I want to be the calculator kid. So I want to be an entrepreneur, an actor, and a stand-up comedian. 
I was doing those others. So I went back to being an entrepreneur. Incidentally, my dad's partner, and this is a lesson of you guys, you know, stay the course sometimes. That that tool business, he left his partner to sell these calculators. Well, in 1975, his partner, Alan Smith, his, his nickname was Smitty, he started a company called Harbor Freight. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's like a multi-billion dollar company and they're all around the country. So that was my dad's old business. Plan. And I grew up around this atmosphere, so I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So when you're, you get fear rejection as an actor, you in the old days, a little different now, you'd spend a half hour, sometimes in LA, an hour on the freeway. You got to go, you got to, you know, you know, sit and wait for to get on there. You got to do the audition and then you got to drive back home in traffic. That's like a five hour deal sometimes in LA just for one audition and you might not get the job. And it's usually 30 auditions per one job. You got to go on 30 rejections to get one job. So I was like, hmm, I could be working as an entrepreneur. So Certain people are like, no, I want to be an actor. I'm going to die for it. I don't care what else I do. Everything else is going to suffer. And I was that guy who was a filmmaker and, you know, for a certain amount of time. But I gave myself a shelf life. And I said, I'm not going to, because I have a lot of friends that are like my age now. And they're like, yeah, man, I'm living in New York. I'm still going for it. I'm doing an off-Broadway off thing. And and that's pretty cool at Wooster Street with, you know, William Defoe's, you know, theater group. And it's really rewarding. I'm doing some good work. And I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm not going to. I just, that wasn't route for me, you know? So, um, hell, I made enough money when I became an entrepreneur and made my own movie again, you know? And I might even do the same thing right now, you know, coming up pretty soon. So that's just the way it is. So you've dealt with ADHD, dyslexia. Um, it's a good segue, by the way, because I'm ADHD in it right now, big time. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, but present tense. You yeah. deal with ADHD, yeah. and but also like damn near homelessness. Uh, a, a very, a very good possibility of not making a damn thing yourself. And then let's fast forward to 2006. Let's talk about love Hollywood style. And in 06, you wrote, directed, starred in this film uh, about intersecting stories set in, obviously, Kansas. Just kidding. Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> but who was in this thing? You said Andy Dick, uh, who I'm a big fan of, first of all. Doesn't get enough love. Faye Dunaway, um, absolute hammer of a goddess. Uh, I think Larry Drake was in this thing, right? Sorry. Right, yeah. to him. Yes. Yeah, so for all you horror jerks, uh, Larry Drake was Dr. Giggles and uh, Bubba in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, uh, which I will not hear any slander on. Just <laughs> let, that be, let that be known. Uh, but Mike, for the young or up-and-coming filmmakers, you showed with the right plan, the right organization, and that formula, uh, you, you can wear multiple hats on set and make it successful. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey making love Hollywood style? Okay. You guys, uh, not because I'm just saying it because I made so many mistakes and I made so many successes, you know, I'll tell you some good stuff about how to make an independent film uh, down and dirty. Okay. Real quick. I started love Hollywood style, made some mistakes on my short film. I did before that in 1998 came out in 99, got bought by HBO. It was tight. I was working in film production, had a crew, had a really good, you know, you know, back up behind me. And I, I was on my game storyboarding it and, and, and shot composite everything. Then I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to make a feature, right? It's only times three, you know, 30 minutes times three, 90 minute. Right. Right. So I was like, I'm going to write, I wrote it. I was like, I'm going to 
direct it and produce it. I'm going to act in it because no one's going to put me in my own shit anyway. So why not just do it? And, and no one's going to want to make this film because it's so outrageous. I was like, you know what? If I'm going to make something, and I was just supposed to be a whole movie. Here's where the disease comes from. And this, this is a mistake. There's a lot of successes and mistakes in Love Hollis now. So I'm like, I'm going to make it down and dirty. And it's just going to be outrageous and funny. Like Kentucky Fried Movie. It's like American Beauty. It's going to be intelligent, but it's going to be crazy. It's going to have like references to Kafka, but it's also going to be, you know, like, you know, wacky. So um, I start, you know, pre-production and I have my B list of actors. Now this is a little trick, you know, you start, you get ready for shooting, you, you get all your contacts together, but then you got your A-list actors, right? But they're, they don't want to, if they're really good actors, that, you know, for independent-wise, you know, you're not going to get like, you know, like a Brad Pitt or anybody, you know, not on a, a shoestring budget, unless he's your best friend and he's like, feels passionate. So you've got your A-list, so you move your B-list, and then you're talking to the agents, and like, no, 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 how much money you got? You, and it's like in Love Hollywood style, there's a difference. You get the money, we'll get the talent, you get the talent, we'll get the money. You're in gridlock, you're in purgatory, nothing's happening. So you, you have to set a shoot date. Now, you have to let your B-actors know that you might not use them. So I start getting ready for Love Hollywood style. I got my, you know, my team together. I got a couple good names in there, but Faye Dunaway's not committed yet. Andy Dick's not committed yet, you know? Um, and uh, Coolio couldn't get a hold of him and had to, like, you know, that was on the fly. That's a good story. And stuff. So I wait till we're like a week away from shooting. And I, I had somebody locked and loaded for Faye Dunaway to play God, right? Nobody. That's awesome to have Faye Dunaway play God. So yes, then I, 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 ha- I said, I know of her lawyer. So I call up and say, look, Here's the script. We wanted to play God. If she's not doing anything next week, why not be in our movie? How much does she want? Let us know what the price is. Because you never get a price, even if you're calling four months out, because she's waiting out. She might be, she might get a call from who knows. She's not going to give you that kind of attention. But a week from now, what's she going to do? Have lunch at Dantana's or whatever? Right? So then you 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 wait to that last moment. You already got somebody waiting in the wings, but you 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 put the approach. Away. She wants $10,000 in, in a paper bag. Don't ask her why in a brown paper bag. She wanted that. And um, I'm like, you know, I'm making money now, right? You can fuck you money. You know, I'm like, no problem, which is actually pretty cheap for a two-time Academy Award winner. You know, yes, I was like, we're going to work the whole schedule around her. I'm, I, got, I got the studio. I'm, a, you know, at a white psych in the studio to play the, yeah, so let's just shoot around her. And, uh, you know, a week later, we're acting with her. You get it on the fly because actors want to act if they liked. You got to do some good work. They liked my short film too. That was a that was a dual opener because it won a lot of awards and it was there was some acclamation there. So, so um, that that's one way. Now, Love Harvest Style started shooting in two thousand three. Started burning boats with my business and I was like, oh wait, that's the bread and butter now. I don't want to lose. I don't want to you know. So I had to take a rest, and then post-production and then it came out finally in 2006 through um a production company that picked it up so i started shooting it in 2003 and i and it came out in 2006 and it was a it was a pretty crazy shoot but it was funny and um and uh that's just kind of like what you can do when you're trying to make a short film oh and also i started spending so much more money i'm like oh i want this before digital you know it was really prevalent and I was like, I'm going to shoot digital. I'm like, no, I want 35 millimeter because I've got Faye Dunaway now. And let's, let's just make it look great. You know, I want that anamorphic, you know, film look and, and um, you know, it just, you know, let's spend a lot more money than I was planning to, but that's, uh, there's a lot more, you got to steal your shots. You got to steal your location sometime, you know, and uh, 
you know, and you got to do what you got to do, but that's a long way to get talent. You wait to the last moment and then, then you try to snag somebody. You've done a hell of a job with it, Mike. You did Thank a hell you. of a job with it. You're welcome. Well, you know, we've got your uh, personal link ready to put into our bio. We're going to take people over to longshotleaders.com. Uh, was, before we get out of here, was there anything else that you wanted to, I, I guess, uh, tell our listeners about? I mean, what, what's Michael Stein up to today? You mentioned something. I don't think you can give out details on those uh, future endeavors, though. Um, I can right about now as far as what I'm doing. Um, I do have... I'm planning to do a film again, uh, but the bigger thing that I'm doing right now is uh, I've had that company that I've launched that I've it's made a lot of money since I started it. It's a it's a Me Too company that sells a Me Too product, meaning you can get that product anywhere. It's like you know tarps and canopies and tent, you know stuff like that, outdoor stuff has nothing to do with filmmaking. But what I'm launching uh, next year is a whole new brand, separate company, fulfillment. We have a big fulfillment. Uh, this my company does in Texas outside of Austin, Georgetown. And uh, I'm starting a company called Bellator, which is making a unique type of patented outdoor product and a whole line of these products that will hopefully be like bigger than the next Yeti. It's uh, quite interesting. So I'm launching that in June of 2023, implying it for like a year and a half, two years. And um, after that, um, we're going to be shooting. I'll be shooting my own commercials and my own uh, stuff for that, and a lot of uh, stuff. But uh, I was just talking to somebody as far as film. I was talking to somebody about um, uh, shooting uh, a script that I wrote, uh, semi-autobiographical, you know, about a dysfunctional family up in one country. So uh, a drama. So uh, that's in the future, and uh, definitely going to go back to doing stand-up once. Uh, you know, I, I get done with that film and uh, we're are the second, the company is uh, working on cylinders, you know, you know, and has momentum. I'll go back to doing stand up, which would probably be like, Dick Sean died on stage, uh, which I have died on stage you know, theoretically, but I would like to do what Dick Sean did and just collapse on stage one day. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we thought Ric Flair was going to die in the ring. Don't, don't take up his, his big story, right? Man, you've, you've, come from some very unlikely backgrounds and you made a hell of a body of workout for yourself something to be proud of i can't wait to see what you do moving forward i'm going to keep an eye out for it. i'm going to make sure our listeners do the same i want to thank you very much for your time today um a lot of things you could be doing on a friday but here you are just chilling and uh slash your sports cinema and i couldn't be more happy that you've done so it's my so pleasure. Thank you very much. I thank you very much for your time. And guys, I want to remind you to check us out on slashersports.com on Twitter and TikTok at slasher sports. No, I'm sorry, slasher cinema BG. That's me. And at slasher sports, uh, slasher sports media on Instagram. I hope you take Michael's story and use it as motivation uh, to go and kill your day. So may you all drink the blood of your enemies from the skulls of their children.